Reader's Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Hello, everyone. It's Halloween week. Oh, my gosh. I know all month I've had all kinds of spooky authors on getting ready for my favorite day of the year. And today we have Doug Clegg, and last year he was my last author on Halloween week, too, so I was so excited when he said he would come back. We always have a great time when he is on the show. And if you have never read Douglas Clegg, you need to go look him up. He has quite the library of amazing spooky fiction for this time of year, and he has everything. It runs the gamut, haunted houses, ghosts, you name it. If you've never read him, though, I'm going to go ahead and read his bio because he's kind of a big deal. So Douglas Clegg is a writer of imaginative dark fiction, including horror, gothic, fantasy, supernatural, and suspense thrillers, and has been a professional novelist since he signed his first book contract with Simon & Schuster back in 1987. He considers much of his horror fiction as being on the surrealistic side of the equation, venturing into the logic of nightmare and dream. His books have been published worldwide and translated into various editions, and his short fiction has won the Bram Stoker Award, the International Horror Guild Award, and the Shocker Award, and has been included in several years' best anthologies. You can keep in touch with him through his newsletter, which I put a link to his website so you can sign up for that, and even better... Sign up for his Patreon page. I put a link for that there, too. But he gives you stories, novelettes, serials, and um, he has a new video up there that I was peeking at yesterday. And we'll talk to him a little bit today, too, about the screenwriting he has coming up. But if you hop on Patreon, you can support him there, and you get all kinds of cool insider things. If you've never been over there, lots of authors have um, Patreon accounts now, and it's a great way to get extra fiction in between books. So I don't want to delay any longer. Doug, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for, thank you for having me on. Hey. Oh, I'm so glad that you're back. I look forward to it every year. <laughs> Um, by the way, the one thing I wanted to add to the Patreon note was that um, I, I don't have a Patreon that charges each month. I basically only when I actually have something to deliver does a Patreon member pay their fee, and it's not that often. <laughs> it's not that often. <laughs> I, 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 part of part of the problem is I I have the same stage fright of publishing to Patreon as I do as with a publisher, so that that basically I really have a perfectionist problem. I don't think I'm I write perfectly, but I have that perfectionist <laughs> problem where nothing's ever right. Um, yes, it's never ready. So, so so <laughs> I've even had to like I promised them in September something and it hasn't come yet. But the good news for them is the the Patreon members who are these amazing people to me. Like the best part about Patreon is getting to know people who absolutely love your fiction, is that, is that they are very kind and forgiving to me, which is nice. You know, unlike the, <laughs> unlike the nice. business world, right? Unlike the business world that has no forgiveness to anybody, but they're, very, they're, they're solid readers who really love the kind of work I'm doing and this kind of fiction. And so uh, I don't want to go too, on too much about that, but Patreon's been a revelation for me because it's, it's really a small group at this point. But what I learned from them is how alike we are in our interests, primarily because I read the same, I write and read the same kind of fiction they read. Yes. 
So I do. I find have that a lot same like that. that same experience. I really enjoy that connection. Um, for so long, you know, you think about Ernest Hemingway, and you're writing it in one room with one light bulb, and then it goes out in the world, and you never connect with anyone. But now mm-hmm. we can, you know, make that connection, and I think it makes it even better. It always inspires me to go write more. Although it's interesting because Shirley Jackson said something like this. I'm not quoting her exactly, but basically she once said something very interesting, which was your only enemy is the reader as a writer. But the reason she said that was because they demand so much and they're going to find every crack in what you do. So so it's funny because I I love these readers. So it's nice to have the the loving side of they're not in. Those aren't the enemies. The enemies are the ones who absolutely hate my books and they still read them. And I'm like, why do you do that? Right. Right. Please, you don't, don't have to buy my books anymore. <laughs> I don't keep reading writers that I don't like your books. I mean, I have other, there are plenty of books in the world to read. So, um, exactly. So well, anyway, speaking one thing of I books. Ask, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, one thing I'll I want to ask first. you is just a, it's a Halloween question. And it was okay. truly this. How are you handling Halloween this year? That like, is an interesting well, I'm not sure if they're going to or not. I still did my Halloween porch, and people have come by nice. to tell me how great they like the porch nice. and, and all that. So I assume that kids are probably going to come by. So I am going to leave out a bucket of candy, all all wrapped uh, you know, candy that right. they can take without anybody passing COVID around is my plan. No, that's very I, cool. I assume well, I think, some will come by. Well, what I, I think I'm going to do is this. I'm going to stand on the porch. Well, first of all, I'm going to first announce So we have a walkway with a garden on either side of it. And as they are about to step on the walkway, I'm going to say, and this is true, I'm going to say, just so you know, this garden is full of snakes right now. It's teeming. And it is. It's not a joke. There's a lot of little snakes. They're harmless. But, you know, when you're a little kid, you're scared of those things. So it'll keep them at a distance for one thing. And then the other thing I'm going to do is then I'm going to pelt them. We have full-size, like, Snickers and Mars bars. And I'm just going to, like, throw them at a distance. (laughs) That way nobody gets COVID. The kids have a little fun. There might be a little bruising. There might be a little bruising going on, but I'm sure those kids will be fine with that once they get the candy bar. Um, (laughs) So... It's sort, of, it's sort of like being abusive, like be abuse. And then, but here's, here's candy, so you're not as abused. I know. But I'll throw the – Yeah, uh, right? I'll them. <laughs> I, you know, I actually think – no, I'm, I, I, think, I think my husband, Raul, is going to actually give out the candy. He's going to do the mask and the gloves. And, of course, each candy is individually wrapped, so that's fine. Right. Um, and I think he's going to brave it. He, I mean, he, I love kids, but he really loves kids. So he's sort of like, no, I'm not worried about this. I'm like going, if we die, and I can figure out who's behind the mask of that kid that gave it to us. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's a, horrible, it's, it's a horrible thing to joke about, so I apologize for that. Anyway, horrible so I'm sorry, Halloween we'll I, wanna, I, I did wonder, though, I did wonder about how people are handling Halloween, so that's interesting. Yeah, I, I assume that they'll probably come by, but I think, it, 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 you know, that I'll just leave the candy out there for them on the haunted porch, and that way nobody infects anybody. Unless you have one of those kids in your neighborhood, right? So, like, when I was a kid, there was always a house that left, the, like, the, the thing of candy out, and basically you just didn't ring their doorbell. But by the time I got there, there was some kid in the neighborhood who had taken all the candy. Oh, yeah. I'll <laughs> well, have to be happens, watching from the window. <laughs> yeah, there's always one kid who does it. We also had, when I was a kid in our neighborhood, there was, there was a group of kids who were slightly older who basically, as you as one of the, I don't know, I was like 10, 9, 10, Nine and ten year olds, and you're in a group, 
going around the corners. And our parents didn't walk with us back then, after the age of seven, I think. So nine and ten, walking around a corner, there were these kids. It was a really nice neighborhood, but there were these kids that were like 12 or 12 and 13, and they would basically bully us into giving them our, some candy. <laughs> oh, no. I know. Well, it, was, it, was, it wasn't that horrible because they didn't take everything, but they just were like, they just, you know, it was sort of like the mafia. They were the 12-year-olds, and we were the 10, 9, and 10-year-olds. <laughs> So they were the protectors. The mafia was protecting us, basically. You know, kids, if you want to survive yes. this, give us a little bit of your candy. Yeah, um, give us some of those Snickers. <laughs> and it's funny how, as a kid, you never tell your parents that stuff. Like you're like, you're, it's, it's as if there's this kid secret world you don't want your parents to know about. So you don't you don't report the other kids to do that. Well, um, it, there's always that fear that then your parents won't let you go, or worse, they'll go with you. Yeah. Or, or no, well. even no. There's one thing worse than that is. Your mother will call their mother. That oh, is the yes, the that's worse. Right? <laughs> I once told a dirty joke. So I'd heard a dirty joke in school, and I once accidentally said it in front of my mother, not knowing how dirty it was. And she <laughs> said, oh, that's an interesting joke. And she said, who told you that joke? And I Uh-oh. really thought, I knew exactly who told me, but I didn't want to get him in trouble. So there's this other kid, and I mentioned his name, thinking my mother would never, didn't. Oh, the other kid, the kid that did it, my, parent, my mother knew the mother. But this other kid right. was from a totally different neighborhood, and my mother would never know him. And she goes, oh, I've run into her, his mother. And she picked up the phone and started dialing the number. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, no. The worst. She could have been faking. She could have been faking. But it's pretty funny. But that That's is like true. Your mom might have been crafty. Like, <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's things about kids where they don't tell certain things about the kid world because they think it's totally like parents don't understand the universe we occupy <laughs> when you're yes. a kid. <laughs> so true. Uh, <sighs> but well, I look. I, am I wanted to talk about um, faces, the faces, because last time when you came on last year, you were so excited because it was almost done, and now it's come yeah. out and it's out in the world, and it's very Halloweeny. Can you tell everybody about it if they haven't read it yet? Yeah, yeah so it is pretty Halloween. So it's uh, so okay. So where do I begin? It's a it's a it's a surrealistic horror story, a Kafka esque in some ways, but with a little bit of humor in it about a guy and his best female friend, and they, he basically feels pe- somebody's been watching him and following him. And it's basically they're about to go, after having a cup of coffee at a coffee house, over to the thrift stores, the, the secondhand stores in this town before they close, because she's like, you're coming to this costume party, this Halloween party on Friday with me. And he's like, he's really grumbling. He isn't very happy in life. And what they find in the secondhand store is this mask. And he recognizes the mask because the mask was once part of a comic, famous comic strip from when his father was a kid. And his father collected comic books and would show him. So it's, it was something he shared with his dad when he was a little kid. And so now he sees a mask based on one of these old, you know, one generation back baby boomer comic strip, sort of like a peanuts of its time, but very bizarre a very strange comic strip. And it was a family called The Faces. And this is the Joe face mask. And so he's mm. like, I'll pick that one. But what he finds is when he goes to this party and then later in every aspect of his life is people don't notice he's wearing a mask at all, but they like him better. Oh. And he starts, <laughs> he starts to, as a trick, like go, he goes to work thinking it'll be a big joke on his boss where he hates his job, he hates his boss, his boss hates him. 
and suddenly his boss likes him and his boss is talking about promoting him. Suddenly this mask, and it's as if nobody notices. It's, you know, sort of like that dream where you're like half naked, but nobody in the classroom notices. Nobody right. notices this isn't actually him and his face. They just assume somehow he's a more wonderful person. But now he has that trauma of, but I know what my real face is. I know who I am. In, like, this doesn't fix my inner problems. It just fixes this outside world. And as he goes about the, his business in the story, he finds there are other people who wear these masks, but you don't recognize them unless you have the mask on yourself. And then he finds oh. there's a whole subculture of these mask wearers. Why are they doing it? What does this mean? What is it about this comic strip from the 1950s and 60s? And he starts digging into, through the Internet, um, he starts digging into this comic strip and finds this horrifying history of the, both the comic artist, the cartoonist, it was you know newspaper funny pages comic artist, and the characters, because, and this is my favorite part in writing this, was coming up with what the shtick was for the comic strip, which is, it's this family of people who not only nothing phases them, but in the deepest tragedies going on around them, right in their face in the world, they sit around happy and going, great day to have a picnic. Um, uh, you know, they don't, the, the worst, most horrific things happening in the world. It's like the reverse of the scream to Edward Munch painting. <laughs> Everyone else is screaming over something, but they're sitting there going, great day for a picnic. So it's this, it's the idea of that in a, in a, a horrifying way, the character starts to learn that this mask is dangerous and that this is the thing that's going to destroy him on the inside, almost like a reverse Dorian Gray, where he is the portrait and the mask is the face everyone sees. And so it's right. really one of these, it, so it just grows and grows from there. And I don't want to reveal too much. Um, I do think it's oh, one of my, fantastic. I think it's one of my best stories where there's a component to it that if I tell you right now, it's not that it would ruin it, but I think it would take away from a reader's experience with it because right. I came from a specific place in my own life, which, and I can say this much of it, where you don't feel you are the person on the outside. I guess you call it a version of the imposter syndrome, where on the outside, you know you're a different person on the inside than how you're perceived on the outside. And I think that right. that's a very clear thing that we all go through at different times in life or different ages or different ways of discovery about our inner selves that we didn't even know before. And so in some ways I was able to play with that in this and, um, and kind of have a lot of fun with it. And, you know, it's a horror story. It's not like, you know, a happy story overall. It's a dark story about right. this kind of thing. So I'm going on and on about it, but I have to admit, it was fun once I got into the groove of the story. As I was, you know, when I start the way I start stories, is I start them with an idea of a scene or, or people noticing something they hadn't noticed before or they cross a line, they're crossing a street that they hadn't crossed before and something slightly changes and then their perceptions change in their entire world. And that's kind of what this is as the story is. I started with, I wanted a coffee house scene. I wanted that thing of in a coffee house where someone is looking at you and you don't know why they're looking at you. Mm -hmm. And from there, I really sort of built up the story. And it was a lot of fun to write. I mean, it, it's got some murder in it, <laughs> some danger, like <laughs> a lot of danger in it. And some, well, because, the, oh, because, because, by the way, the big secret of this mask group is once you know the mask, once you're one of the faces, you can't ever not wear that mask when you're out in public or people who wear the mask might kill you. <gasps> because you're, uh -oh. you, you're, you're at risk of revealing their world to the rest of the world. So it's a very, it's a very, it becomes a very 
plot sort of story. I, I would say it's even Hitchcockian in a very messed up way. So anyway, it was a fun. Yeah. It was a fun story to write. I'm really happy. First of all, I love the way you know that, that cover. By the way, was a pre-made. <laughs> My favorite designers, uh, Damon Um he had, he had a pre-made, and I was like, wow, that fits my story absolutely perfectly, that cover. And so uh, I really love the story, and I think I did a good job. I think I, I think I rang all the bells that needed to be rung in that story in, in about 100 pages. So it's not a very long book. That's so cool. And did you, did you plot it, or did it grow as you were writing? Well, it's, it's, it's that thing where it's a little both, right, where you start writing into something because the life of something is always – some, something in your mind that just has to go somewhere. And I pushed it somewhere. And as I pushed it and as I wrote and as I wrote, I, of course, went back to revising. Oh, wait a second. I'm missing something here. Something should be here that's more dramatic than this. And so then I would go back. So I always consider the first draft the outline. Um, oh. And it's not always like this with the 100, ended up 100 pages. It probably was a 45-page first draft. And then I was like, wait a second. We need to know more about this Faces comic strip. And then we, and I need to somehow sew that into the narrative so that drama can rise from him even looking this up. And I need to know more about this woman that's his best friend for years, but they're not romantically involved yet. And I need to know why that, what is going on with the two of them. And I need to know who would be at these parties wearing these masks and why would they be wearing the masks? So because they have parties for the faces. If they get together, that's the one place they can take their masks off is among each other. And um, so, I, so that's basically how I wrote it. So the, the, the draft was relatively short, shorter than certainly than the final book, half as, half as long. And then what happens is as I figure out, wait a second, I need a scene about this. The, the, there's too many possibilities. I don't want to miss a possibility in what the story suggests. And that really goes back. Right. And then suddenly I have 100 pages. In the case of a novella, I have 100 pages. Um, with a novel, it also happens where I, get, I, I write into about 200 pages. I'm usually, I usually in a novel, there's a point where I, I've written maybe 100 pages at the beginning, and I kind of scoot to the end without worrying about the complications because suddenly I know what the end should be. That often changes. But, and then I have 200 pages, and then I go, well, 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 now I need to write that. I need to write the things that misdirect and delay the character from reaching that ending and also make sure they get to that ending. And so in doing that, often the ending changes because I always, I'm sure you do, all writers. I, I, I was going to say, yeah, do the ending you want, change? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want to surprise yourself. You, you yourself as a writer want to get to like this higher ground of the story. Like, oh my God, this, my, because one of the problems with writing, I think, is you start from a place of kind of ignorance as a writer, other than you know how to write if you've written before. But you're writing a story but you really don't know because your mind itself needs to go on a journey while writing. And the one problem I always had with outlines where you sort of have to kind of stick to them, you know, you can always change outlines too, is I never liked the definitive ending where I know that uh, I've got to end up at point Z because every other point along the way now has to just build to that. And it feels boring as a writer um, right. to me. And so what happens is I love writing and going crazy and immersing myself in the world. And I've discovered in this other thing I'm doing with, with movie scripts that what, ha- what I've discovered in that too, which is amazing to me and a lot of fun for me, is the game of it. The game of getting into something and immersing into character so that I need to live inside that world before I really see what the book is or, or in yeah. the movie case of the script. I need to completely know 
why those characters? I I have this thing where I even go through in my head. Okay, what was she? What did she want to be when she was six years old? What did she want to be at twelve mm-hmm. years old? I don't show any of that in the book. What did she want to be at seventeen? And why were those changes occur? What happened in her life to change the things she dreamed of as a child into this dream she dream of a teen, and then this dream of an adult? And now she's forty, and this is where she is because of those choices she made. And that helps me live right inside that character so I can write them. Yes, um, yes. And I, uh, I sometimes will catch myself going, well, why her? Why her? Why her? And eventually, right. when right. I'm halfway through the book, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's why her. Yeah. <laughs> that's my favorite part of writing right. is when you suddenly get it's an answer. Me. <laughs> well, by the way, because when you get – me too. And when you get that answer, the writing's easy. Once you get that yes. answer, the writing is pretty simple because you're just like going, okay, because whichever way you turn <laughs> with that character, they go in the right direction for the story. Once right. you know that, once you're in that immersive place with that character where you're like, you can see them the day they were born on some level because you know them inside and out and their moral compass, you know exactly where they would turn in any given situation. Um, and as a result, the story can move in any direction and still be satisfying to read. Yes, and I, I think agree, that's... and and I think that gives readers a twist when it even surprises us. <laughs> I, I think it does, and also because to me the fun of I wish the fun of writing were the deals or the um, you know or looking at money coming in, and which I always like. But I mean, looking at money right. coming in doesn't do it for me. I wish it did. Like even when I've gotten mm-hmm. big book deals in the past, I. The money was great for like a year, year and a half. You pay taxes and everybody else, and you just go, well, it's not so much. But three years later, four years later, I almost forget what the money was because all I think of is, did that book give me what I wanted it to give me, which was this weird, messed up, psychological thing of, I li- you li- as a writer, you live in this part of your brain where your imagination is the primary source of your happiness. I That's think. true. <laughs> and as yes. a result, you need to feed that, and these stories – feed that and I think for readers it feeds that too I think readers writers and readers are very close to each other in many ways and readers and writers are always readers I think if they're good writers mm-hmm. and what happened was right. I think kids that really read a lot and whose parents really encourage them to read a lot grow up in an entirely different world from those kids who don't read that much like it's mm-hmm. an entirely different experience of life that we have because there's a wealth in that imagination and it gives us extra experience we did, don't have you know, your experience is very limited in your lifetime, for the most part. Right. Um, you know, I mean, you may have been to paradise, but you've never been to me. I've been to me as a writer. So the thing is, what happens is you <laughs> – I thought you'd enjoy that. So you, you get this, this thing <laughs> where, as a reader, you've been feeding your imagination for years and years and years, and your sense of language has grown, and your language improves your imagination because it creates visions of things based on – the words that you now know that mean things. And we start to live in a world of meaning, and I think that's very important about reading and why it's, I think yeah. it's more important than visuals, although visuals are extremely important too. Obviously, that also feeds another part of the mind, maybe even part right. of the same part. But to, build, but to translate into words means we can communicate it to other people indirectly. Like pictures are direct. You see what it is. It is what it is. But language, you can every – Someone can read the same sentence and a and hundred people could have a hundred different experiences from that sentence. Very true, because um, their own life experience so, comes in with it. And everything else, and every other sentence they've ever read, every other meaning they've ever had. And I do think that we, you, you have a, imagine, keeping the imagination 
fertilized brings a lot of happiness in those dark times in life, in those times when you just deal with the, the lousy stuff that happens. Even now, like, don't you find, even during this pandemic, when everyone's sort of cloistered, you have a wealth of stuff there, right? You have your writing and you have your reading. Right, right. You have a world yeah, that you I can feel very lucky. go into. Yeah, I do too. Yes, <laughs> creep away. I have friends who complain about <laughs> I have friends, right? I have friends who complain about this. I'm like, going, this is my ideal time. <laughs> this this well, is my time when every I'm like, week, I like, yeah. Every okay. week when writers come on, I, I tell them, you know, how are you doing right now? And we always come to the conclusion we've been training for this our whole lives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Staying inside <laughs> and reading it's, and writing. <laughs> listen, I, I've always thought this too, that I thought, you know, there are two other lives I could have. I could, I could be. I could commit a crime where I'm in jail. I'm not going to commit a crime because I'm scared of that stuff. But I'm, I, I could see living in jail my entire life because I'd be like, well, it's not so bad. I get to, as long as I can write and read, I'm good. And then, right. um, or, 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 be, and and I'm sure there'd be some dating involved. And then there's also the, the monk cell. I'm like, well, yeah, monk doesn't sound so bad as long, as long as I don't have to do all the gardening. But uh, you know, it's like <laughs> there, there's a the sense of being al- alone in a group is one of the best feelings, in my opinion. Other people I know are scared of that, mm-hmm. but I'm like, I love being alone in a group. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I, I love feeling. I love, I mean, I love going to a train station just to watch people come and go and being alone. Oh, it's, right. It's the best thing to me. Yeah. 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 No, I totally relate. That's okay. But it goes back to but... writing, and, writing and the imagination and how characters come about from that. Yes, that's so true. And I wanted to, before we, I could talk to you all day, but before we run out of time for the show, right? I know someday we're going to have to meet up for coffee, but anyway, so this, we were talking before the show started, but I, and I mentioned about your Patreon having, you know, screenplays, but you have all sorts of movie stuff cooking right now. Can you tell anybody about any of them? I think what I can tell us, well, I mean, here's the way it goes is, you listen out of the blue this might also be because of the pandemic but out of the blue i suddenly being i've been contacted by some people i mean some from my past i used to work in hollywood when i was young i didn't work that much in hollywood i was actually at a tv news studio working uh but a lot of friends that were writers and their ambitions were to be to produce and write and that kind of thing and um and some of them i've lost touch with over the years but a couple have stayed in touch and so one of them has created this amazing company and does a lot of documentaries, a very old friend of mine from, from actually from, he's from France and, but he's been in Hollywood since he was his twenties and we met there. Um, he has been doing a lot of great, wonderful documentaries, brilliant guy, in my opinion, a guy named Laurent Bouzereau, who is, he recently did the Natalie Wood biography on HBO. And within the last few years, he directed and um, produced, I believe the, uh, there's a great series documentary on Netflix called Five Came Back. And so he approached me and he's like, you know, do you want to get, co-write some stuff? And I'm like, absolutely, absolutely. This is the perfect year for this. And we started doing it. We, we, we've been um, optioning a book, not mine, and adapting it. And then, and I can't really talk about that yet, but, and then um, meantime, like a week later, I get a call from a really great director who I knew when he was very young um, and he's doing really well. And he basically said to me, look, I'm, I'm, this is something I've thought about for years, this one novella of yours. And so that's going on, and I'm actually in the process of writing a script. I, I'm going to just say what the novella is. I don't think this necessarily is any trade secret for Hollywood. It's called Purity. And um, it's 
really fun to turn into a screenplay, I have to admit, as I'm working on the screenplay. And then, meanwhile, sometime last spring, actually, another book was optioned for the movies, and it beca- I didn't write the script for it, though, but it's funny, the, um, the level of involvement attached to my position with the option that I didn't request, but they brought to me, which was great, was basically, as that goes forward, I will be part of producing. And so oh. it's very – everything. And then, just a week ago, someone contacted my agent in New York and just said, who handles Doug Clegg's film rights? Is this one trilogy of his available? And I don't know what's going to come of that, but it's also been happening. Literally, in the last few months, so much has happened. And I've been working intensely on screenplays, really learning this craft. I'd studied it on my own uh, several years back, especially when I lived in Hollywood. But I never really understood it. But the process of writing these 40-some books over the past 30 years has really taught me something that I didn't realize how much it taught me about dialogue, about character, as we were talking about getting into the character, those things. And it really has helped me in the screenwriting so that very luckily, when, for instance, when I turned in uh, part of a screenplay, the person on the other end who is an absolute pro, who has many things to his credit, said, thank God you're doing this because you really have created a movie in this. And that was the best oh. compliment I could have gotten. So I was very happy. But I can't say anything about it because ultimately, sort of like books, is often I write a book and then I sell it if I sell it to New York. And so it's, there's no guarantee when I write the book that it's actually going to sell it to New York. And it's very similar with this, despite having a lot of people that are looking at this stuff right. now. There's never a guarantee until the financial stuff is put down by somebody with a big pocket. Right. And so, Somebody's got to so get a I, checkbook. I, you know, it could right. It could be that I do all this stuff and nothing happens. I don't believe that based on what's going on right now. But you never know. And um, <laughs> well, we don't want to jinx and anything. I, <laughs> well, that's what I feel. I I, I always worry that I'm going to jinx something by saying too much. And I think I've been pretty good about what I've mentioned without saying too much. Although I will mention my friend Laurent, who was both the most debonair kind of guy I know, not just that he's French, and who also is funny as hell, and also tells me the movies to watch to help further my screenwriting career, like studying how certain movies oh, are absolutely it. perfect in their screenplays. Yeah, so it's been a lot of fun, and I've never laughed so hard on the phone as I do with him every week now. Because we go oh, over all I love that. and we just have a great, great time. So the working relationship's nice. And, and, but the bad part is I put aside some more work that I've been putting aside for a while in, in writing fiction, but I'm hoping after New Year's to get back to that. Um, because I think I'll have most of this stuff done by January, and then I can take sort of a breather from the screenplays for three to four months. But what's nice is learning, working, it's a very intense learning curve I've had with, this, with screenwriting. And so what I've learned from it, I can apply to the novels that I really had put aside, and I think I can actually, therefore, complete them, because now I know something I did not know before I started working on screenplays. So that's been a great Oh, that's thing. awesome. So next year, we're going to have more Doug Clegg books, right? I hope. I hope. You know, I always think there's going to be more every year. And then every year, I, I don't, you know, I mean, I don't know what happened to me. I mean, I know what happened to me, but something happened to me where I wanted to write. I kind of felt like without having the success of J.D. Salinger, I felt the way J.D. Salinger felt at a certain point, not about people in general, but he, when he started just writing for himself and writing and writing, mm-hmm. but not putting anything up. I sort of needed that time. I've, I've really needed that time. And to me, it's been a growth period for my writing. But as my husband has said to me, people are going to think you're insane. And luckily, when I read him stuff I wrote, he said, well, thank God you're not insane, Doug. It's good that you're working on this <laughs> stuff this way. 
But he said, people are going to think you're insane. And I'm like, I know, but I have to do the thing. I've always felt very fortunate in some ways. I've had some lousy years in, in, in the trade of writing books, but I've had some great years too. But I've always felt that I ha- there was some inner guide for as I was writing, meaning, I don't mean that in a spooky way or an overly spiritual way, but I always felt that something in my mind held back from doing things that I felt, even though they looked smart at the time, they weren't going to be right for me. And so similarly, there was a point when I pulled back from New York publishing where I felt it's not going to be right for me anymore. There's something different that's changed there, and I don't know exactly what it is, but it's made me psychologically think I don't really want to deliver fiction to New York yet. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I self-published stuff, and I pulled some, I, I think I've published one new collection and some short novellas, several short novellas in the past seven years, but I have... 27 projects on the side that are like 300, 200 to 300 pages into them um, that I just haven't brought to completion. And part of it sounds insane, but as I look at them, I go, there's something in me that wants to write these, but does not necessarily want to put them out for a while. Oh, and it's okay. Not because of the, it's, it's not because of the quality of the books. It's some other thing. And I never understand the sense, but when I look back on my life, all those instincts I had worked out the way they needed to. Right. Um, yeah, you got to trust your gut. At the, listen, even as you know, even writing books for a living, people are going to think you're insane. Like when I started, it's not like everyone was like going, oh, that's great. Like It's not like my parents were like, that is great. You should write books. Because clearly you don't need to make a lot of money in life. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I, but, but by the way, they were still supportive. But they basically were like, yeah, but get a law degree. And I was like, uh-uh, there's just something in me that says no to that. Probably because I might not mm-hmm. get, be able to get one. I might not be very good at it. <laughs> But also it's like there's something in me, there's this thing that, that I've had since I was about four or five years old, which is like story, 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 story. And so right. I've always kind of followed that line, which, whichever way that line broke, because it always gives me something back that makes me stronger. Um, mm-hmm. So despite this craziness, I'm sure my agents have thought I was like, I've been kind of like nuts or, I mean, I wouldn't blame any agent for thinking that because... He knows I've been writing. He's seen some of it. And I'm like, I just don't want to take it out. It's not, it's not an interest of mine. There's something in the atmosphere now where I'm like, if I'm going to do it, it'll be self-published. And mm-hmm. if I'm going to do it, it's going to be for this thing that's purely for my, my satisfaction of getting the book that I think should be out, out. So I apologize. I'm taking right. time on this stuff. Be my therapist. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, you said you've been watching lots of things. What what cool Halloween kind of movie should we all watch right now? There's well, so much great I, content now, but there is, there hard is. To find I, it. I am I'm not watching Halloween or specific kind of horror that much. I've been watching some though. So one thing I always watch on Halloween night is Hocus Pocus. I can't help it. Yes. I can't help yes. it. That's that thing <laughs> me hits too. me the right way. <laughs> There's, there's stuff in it Every that doesn't time. work, but there's so much that works. And yes. it's, really, it's really about, I mean, I saw some comedian, I think, describe this, which is, so this is not original to me, but I think it's true, which is, it's like there's a movie where the director told the kid actors to act as if this is the most serious movie in the world, and then told the, the women playing the witches to go, this is totally a gay camp story. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is a campy story and you're drag queen, so just play it. Um, go. And, and, <laughs> And I didn't come up with that. Someone, some comedian came up with that. I remember. I do not remember who now. I should give them credit, but I don't remember who. But I just, I do feel that way about it. Someone said that. I don't know mm-hmm. who said that. Maybe not a comedian. Maybe a Facebook friend. I get life confused with Facebook now. 
So, <laughs> but that's how that's Halloween night. But but what I've been doing really for screenplays is trying to watch what I consider the master, and that's Hitchcock. So we've oh. we've been and I I watch but I watch these almost every year for several years because I see something new in storytelling every time. So the birds, of course, which is mm-hmm. amazing and amazing and mystifying because it's a, a story where it all seems irrational and yet it's a great movie. And then mm-hmm. it's not irrational; it's very structured, very perfectly done. Um, and then um, Psycho, of course, which is genius and the more you watch it the more you realize the two things one tony perkins should have won an oscar for that that <laughs> performance that he gave no i mean i'm serious his his performance just in the motel talking normally is like you go wow this guy is amazing as a young actor he's still young then and then the other side to it is you realize it's really more about marion crane even though she died oh i, I don't want to give it away but even though something happened, well it's a, it's Spoiler about alert her, on an old a, movie. <laughs> it, it, I know. It's about her, her that going inside the character and knowing every turn she's going to make based on who she is and what she wants. And so it's, it really is a wonderful story with a very sort of complex underbelly to it. And then it's just a lot of friggin' fun. And it's a lot of fun um, right to the last minute uh, of that movie. So that's so Psycho and then... You know, really the classics, Vertigo, uh, Dial-M for Murder, which has, which to me, one thing Hitchcock did was the villain in Dial-M, Ray Milland, played by Ray Milland, is really the centerpiece of the whole movie. Like, mm-hmm. if you ever watch that movie, he has this one lengthy scene with the hired assassin where it's so wonderful that you're like, I'm kind of on his side. <laughs> I'm kind of on the bad guy's <laughs> it side. It wouldn't be bad if he wins. <laughs> and we just watched, we watched Stage Fright, which pulls the most amazing rabbit out of a hat imaginable in a movie, a stage fright, which is such a great Hitchcock movie. Um, and, Cause it pulls this one trick that is amazing. Foreign correspondent, great movie of Hitchcock's. And then also the lady vanishes, which is remarkable. Um, and the humor, getting humor in with horrific situations, making light of murder in a way that still keeps the murder or the, the crime serious, but just relieves a level of tension. I think you need when you're in that kind of story. Um, right. When you're in the story. So, like, for instance, one of the most horrifying movies I've ever watched is My Cousin Vinny. And it's horrifying. <laughs> I, I say it's a horror movie because, and I don't remember it well enough in terms of what the shtick was about Vinny and the kids, but I do remember there's a point when, I guess it's one of the kids must be in trouble. Someone's in trouble, and you, I got this thing in my gut where I'm like, oh, damn it, I'm going to have to watch the whole movie before this gets unraveled. Because whatever this is, once it's figured out, the movie's over. And I was right. Right. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be clenched guts this entire movie because I right. feel so bad for this character. And to me, that's right. real horror, which I don't really love in movies because I'm just like going, it's, it's almost like um, You're too so we watched the, the Borat. Time. So we watched the new Borat movie the other night, which is genius. <laughs> and it is it's because it's over the top. I had to hide my face in pillows because I was so embarrassed for the people who I normally <laughs> would not be embarrassed for. But I was so embarrassed, laughing, but also horrified because of right. the, the lengths they go to. And so that's its own. It, horror to me, really the best horror, reaches this weird funny bone place. It's almost like that thing where it's the, it's the babbling madness of, of when Veronica Cartwright has killed an alien, but you don't see it. You just hear her babbling and moaning. Like, mm-hmm. ah, and, and you know that it's some horrible death, but we're not going to even be able to see it, so we can even imagine it. It's that kind of thing where it's almost 
funny. It's the the point of life that's the most horrifying also has this weird absurdist humor to it. And boy, Borat well, really gets that. <laughs> or Sasha Baron Cohen as Borat. Yes, yes. Well, I we're way out of time, but I've had such a blast. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be a part of so the nice. Halloween festivities. <laughs> You're so nice to put up with me because I realized how off topic I've gone the entire time. That was fun. <laughs> That's okay. It was so fun. Thanks so much for being here, and I hope you have a great Halloween. You too, and Lisa. Thank you so much. And don't Thanks for joining us on Book Life. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.